Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you that you have opened our hearts to hear your word. And we know, Lord, that you have a specific thing to say to each one of us because you are our personal God. And we thank you for that, Lord. Uh, Lord Jesus, we know that when you had miracles and you did miracles, you did most of the miracles in the New Testament in person to one person. <clears throat> where you could have healed people by the dozen, but you did it personally because you are a personal God. And we thank you for that, Lord. We thank you for everybody that's here tonight. And Lord, I pray that you bless them, keep our ears open, and help us to uh, place our hearts with your word. We thank you and we love you. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. <clears throat> okay. I told my wife on the way here that if my iPad dies, I'm in trouble, real big trouble. <laughs> so <clears throat> we're going to be looking at the book of uh, Romans tonight, and we're going to take a little journey through the first 17 verses, and we're going to really discover that Paul, um, Paul is an icon to me in the Bible. Um, I like to follow what he's done and what, he's, uh, what he says. And um, I didn't even think that Paul realized that he was going to take up most of the, most of the, the, the room in the, um, in the New Testament. But he, he has, and uh, praise the Lord he has, with the Lord's wisdom. So we're going to talk about the first 17 verses. And Romans really is a remarkable book. <clears throat> to introduce the book, um, one of the greatest documents ever, ever written, as far as I'm concerned. And it isn't a letter dealing with church problems like most of the letters are that Paul wrote. It's a doctrinal letter. It's a letter that uh, is full of doctrine. And uh, we know that uh, there was a bishop by the name of John Chrysostom out of uh, Antioch back in the 3rd to the 4th century. And he had the book of Romans read to him as he was working or doing what he was doing twice a week. The whole book. And he listened to it all the time. Martin Luther, we know, was drawn and saved out of the book of Romans. And Wesley started a, um, a revival in England with the Book of Romans. So the Book of Romans is really a remarkable, remarkable letter. Paul gives the longest introduction in the Book of Romans that he usually does. And then he goes into explaining how the entire world is under sin. <clears throat> Excuse me how the entire world's under sin. Chapter 1 through chapter 3, 19, verse 19, tells us that uh, we're sinners, and he explains that all. But Paul not only tells us that we're all sinners, and he often, and we, we've all fallen short of the glory of God, but he also tells us how a holy God can be involved in people like us all the time, 
as believers. He tells us how God is just and is the justifier of all of us who believe. By now we should know the things that should change within us. If If we're saved tonight, we know that there's still things inside of us that Jesus needs to save. Uh, Things like selfishness, he needs to change those. Selfishness, pride, uh, jealousy, and it goes on and on and on. We all have that embedded into us from birth. But as a believer, we should also be satisfied that God can and will be the justifier of all of us who believe. And he will continue his good work in us that he has started because we understand what he did on the cross. We understand that and we know that. And Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross must be the epicenter of what we believe in our hearts. That must be the key. Paul wrote this letter around 58 AD and he wouldn't get to Rome for about three years. He always had this desire, and he tells us this in these, in these beginning scriptures, that he always had the desire to go to Rome. But God told him he was in Corinth at the time, and he was on his third missionary trip. And God told him to stay there at Corinth because he had many people in that city. God wanted to serve and wanted to save many people in that city. So he allowed Paul to stay there. And Paul was no, he was always familiar with the problems of the church in Corinth because they had some big problems. Suing each other, their immorality, getting drunk at the communion table, uh, not, not to mention all the problems that were in the city itself. So Paul stayed there. There was about a million people in Rome at this time. And he had this desire to write to them. So Paul, among the chaos in Corinth, having the Roman Christians on his heart, decides to write them a letter. He sends the letter to them through a woman, a deacon woman of a church in Caesarea, which wasn't too far away from uh, Corinth. And she hand-carried this letter to Rome. And like I said, there were about a million people in Rome at the time. And they may possibly have been more than one congregation. So she brought that to them and hand-delivered it. And it got to them, and eventually it got to us. And praise the Lord that it did. Because the Book of Romans really, I normally look at the Book of Romans as a Christian constitution. Okay, It tells us how bad we are but it tells us what we need to do to get out of that badness, okay, to get out of that cruelty. Um, So Paul sends it on by this young lady called Phoebe. And Phoebe means pure, radiant, or bright, which really fits that. And the letter went on to the Christians in Rome. So let's read these verses here, and then we'll go back and we'll analyze it a little bit. Um, Romans uh, 
Chapter 1, verse 1 says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations, for his name, among whom you also are called of Jesus Christ. And he goes on in verse 7 and he says, To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son. And without ceasing, I make mention of you always in my prayers. If by some means, now at last, I, I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual, spiritual gift so that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Now I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I have often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. I am a debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to wise and to the unwise. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. Verse 16 said, or, uh, verse 15 says, uh, I'm sorry, verse 16 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, written, the just shall live by faith. <clears throat> and many people, many commentators say that that verse 17 is the theme of the entire book of Romans. So let's go back and... Uh, see what Paul has done. Paul says that he introduces himself to start a letter, which I guess was a normal thing back then. A lot of times we get letters now, and the first thing we do when we get a letter, we look at the end to see if somebody put their name on it. 
and uh, see who wrote it, okay? And that determines whether or not we read it or not. <laughs> but <clears throat> Paul starts out by explaining and, and uh, introducing himself. Paul calls himself the bondservant, a slave, or in the Greek, a doulos. In the Roman Empire, there were 60 million slaves, but only 6 or 7 million people who were Roman citizens. 60 million to 6 or 7 million. So there were many slaves. A slave was owned by someone. So right away, Paul introduces himself as being owned by someone, a bondservant. It was known to Rome and Roman culture that the worst thing that you could call someone was a doulos or a slave. Okay, but Paul's telling him, called himself that. He's a bondservant. Paul considered himself a slave to Christ. We, we know that, <clears throat> or we try in America to think that relief from struggles is life <clears throat> is not to, is to find freedom. The relief from struggles is to find freedom. Okay, in actuality, <clears throat> our freedom is being challenged every single day. No matter what we do, even in Freedom America, our freedom is challenged and always challenged. But we have to remember one thing. The relief and settling only comes from finding the right master in our life, just like Paul did. He finally found the right master. Paul had been, a master, Paul had been mastered by Judaism and legalism. He was angry and bitter. He made it his mission to hunt down Christians and release his anger on them. He followed this master until he met the true master on the road to Damascus. The true master knocked him down. And from what I believe and what I, what I, what I see and what I believe of, of Jesus, he gently talked to him in a quiet voice and told him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard to kick against the goads. Well, after he went through all that, Paul was no longer a master to Judaism. He was no longer a slave to religion. And, and any people in here that used to go someplace else, and I did, can remember how you were a slave to religion until Jesus came by and told you that you need to be a slave of him instead of religion. It's about relationship and not religion. He was no longer a slave to the system, and Paul was no longer a slave to theology like he was. He was no longer a slave to denominations. He was a slave to a person, Jesus Christ. So we need to keep that in our mind. So Paul, we'll start in verse 1. Paul was a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Paul was a bondservant, and I'd like to be a bondservant someday to Jesus Christ. I'm not there yet. 
And I really do believe that what it takes is a full, total, 100% surrender. We have a lot of distractions in our life that we have to put aside. The TV, the news. The biggest one is our cell phones. Okay? Our cell phones. You can actually cringe and worry if you think, seem to think that that thought comes by you that you lost your cell phone. Because your whole life is on your cell phone. So you think about that, and, and you think about that, how you kind of cringe when that happens. I left my phone at Wegmans. I left my phone at this restaurant. I left my phone over here. You know, we, we get nervous. Our bank accounts, everything are on them. What we need more to do is we need more to spend time alone with Jesus and to just sit in a dark room and just sit with Jesus. Sit at the foot of the cross so that we know where we stand. Verse 1 and 2 there, and verse 2 and verse 1, it goes on and it says, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. Now he talks about being separated as an apostle. He's a sent one, but he's been separated. In Galatians 1.15, Paul tells us, but when it pleased God... He separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace. So what Paul's actually doing here is he's looking back to his mother's womb and telling us that, look it, my entire life up to this point and beyond is planned by God. He's the one that separated me. No matter what I did in the past, chasing down Christians and putting people to death and being a terrorist doesn't really count. I go back right to my mother's womb and God separated me for that reason and this is what I'm doing today and I'm going to keep going forward. How many of us have things in our past that we regret? I know I do. I have a lot of things that I regret. But the trick of it is is not to dwell on our regrets. And if we dwell on them, Then we start that pity party again and we feel sorry for us, ourselves, instead of moving forward. Okay, if you're saved tonight and you have something in your past that's, that's slowing you down or convicting you all the time, God, if we're saved, Jesus, God has taken care of those sins. He's, he's chose to forget about them, so we really should choose to forget them. (laughs) Okay. He chose to forget him, so we should follow him and be, and be satisfied with it. And if, and if it's still there, you need to sit alone with Jesus and you need to go see him. And you need to come back to him and say, look it, I messed up. I'm sorry. And repent. You need to repent. Something we, we do that we look back for, backwards. But yet Paul learned to leave everything behind. In fact, he tells us in Philippians three thirteen, Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, which means he doesn't understand everything at this point. But he does say, but I, one thing I do know, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. And he learned that, and I think we should learn that from Paul, that anything in the past doesn't really count. It's only the future that counts. 
So, we know, Paul goes on and he explains about the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son. Now, Paul explains the gospel of God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not the God of Allah, not the the God of the Mormons, not the Mormons' book, not the, uh, you know, the Jehovah's Witnesses. He's talking about the true word of God, the true word of God, and that's what he's talking about. But he gives it some, he, he gives it some proof. He goes on and he says, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now the word son in that scripture, in the scripture here, in the Greek, it's got two different uh, meanings. The first one is technon, which, is, which means a child or the born one. The second one is heroes, that means the heir, the heir of all things. And now we know that Jesus was the heir of all things. So it's referring to the heir in, in the scripture. And he goes on and he says, who was born, again, that word born in the Greek context means he came. Not that he was born, he came. And when we say that he came, that refers to preexistence. And he was preexistent. The word became flesh. Okay? And then he goes on and he says, Uh, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Now he he talks about the resurrection here. And to me, after studying all this, I realize that the resurrection is the proof of God's power. And, you know, sometimes, sometimes we read the scripture and it seems to be so easy that we can pick it up. Sometimes we don't pick that stuff up. And this here, to me, meant that that is a proof, that is one proof of God's holiness and his power, that he resurrected his son from the dead. I mean, that's just awesome if you really sit and think about it. So he goes on then and he says, through him... We have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. Now, his reference to obedience to the faith in the New Testament is belief. If we have belief, then we have faith. Okay? His apostles said to him in John chapter 6, 28 and 29, they said, How do we work the works of God? If you want us to do this, how do we do it? And Jesus answered him and he said, This is the works of God that you believe on whom he has sent. So all we really have to do is believe. And he makes it so easy for us that we don't don't even have to stretch out our arm. We just have to believe with our heart that he is God and what he did. So he goes on and he says that... uh, And I'm sorry, one last thing. Obedience, doctrinally, in the New Testament, in regards to faith, is belief. So when the New Testament refers to obedience, we're talking about faith and belief. 
belief is supported by faith. Okay, so we have belief, we have faith. And that's not to make it too confusing. But <clears throat> I was reading some readings by um, um, Dr. Stanley. I was reading one of his books. And we know that Hebrews 11, and I'll go there, you don't have to, gives us an explanation or a definition of faith. And it says, now faith is a substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. But Dr. Stanley took it a little bit farther. And he said, true faith is not just assurance in a certain outcome. Rather, it's absolute confidence in God's unfailing character and ability regardless of the circumstances. So whatever happens, happens, but we still have faith in God. Uh, that's just like uh, uh, the three kids that were thrown into the fire there in Daniel. Okay, They had faith that God would rescue them. And there are three names escape me at the minute, but there we go. Thank you. <laughs> but they sat there and said, look at we're, we have faith in God. Whatever happens, happens, but we still have faith in God. And what happened was, is they were saved by God. And that, and that was just a little bit more of an extension about what faith is all about. But he goes on in verse 7, and he says, to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. Those two words, beloved and saints. Okay, beloved is the same word that was used when Jesus was baptized. It's the same word. When God said, this is my beloved son, whom I am well pleased. <clears throat> Sometimes I've heard some of the commentators say that the Greek in that sentence is God says that who I am already well pleased, which he hasn't even started his ministry yet, and he's already pleased with him. He was a carpenter. He was a carpenter's kid. He was a goody two sandals. So he was already proud of him. He was already well pleased with him. So what's that tell you about us? We are his beloved. If we're believers, we're his beloved. And he loves us. And he's well pleased with us. Kind of like an oxymoron. It doesn't make sense to me. But if, if he wants to be proud of me, then, then I'll accept it. <laughs> it's as simple as that. The word saints. Uh, we know we've heard it that anybody that's born again is a saint. And I picked up on a, uh, a commentary. And I want to read this to you. It says, all, we are already saints Hagios in the Greek. It says, this is not something a Christian may become sometime in the future. I know that uh, the Catholic Church has their meeting of the cardinals and they review somebody's, somebody's life. I think it, they have to be dead for like 10 years or something. Okay, And it's kind of like what the Congress does all the time. And they review somebody's life and they seem to think that they're going to make them saints, then they don them a saint, you know. Trust me, folks, there's never going to be a St. Thomas if that's what they do with me. 
okay? I know there's a St. Thomas according to them, but this one ain't going fit to that, fit that mold, okay? But according to this, it says that um, we're not going to be saints sometime in the future or it doesn't signify an honorary title of an unusual holy person. All born-again Christians, true Christians, are saints by the sovereign call of God. So it's about him. It's not about us. So if you decide you want to put your friend's, uh, you know, a, a portrait of your friend or something on your front lawn, that ain't going to work, okay? <laughs> it doesn't work. It's all about God. God makes us saints in his sovereignty. They have been set apart. We have been set apart, forgiven of our sins, and are being sanctified by faith in Jesus Christ. So that's what saints are all about. We're already saints. So when you go to your next interview for your next job, slip that into the interview. Tell them you're a saint. You probably won't get the job, but at least you'll get the point across anyway. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> he goes on, Paul, and he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. P uh, faith and peace and grace always go together, but grace needs to come first in that, in that order. Okay, We have to have grace before we can have faith. Peace, uh, the peace that he's talking about here, as we receive through grace, is having peace with God through Christ and because of Christ's work on the, on the cross. And let me give you an example. We'll talk a little bit about grace and um, mercy and peace. Uh, let's just say, for instance, and you're, you're going to laugh when you hear this example because, because I'm a retired cop. You're all on death row. You're all murderers. You're all on death row, okay? And you're waiting for somebody to sign. You're waiting for the governor to sign a stay of, of, of execution. It's getting 24 hours to your execution. And the warden comes in your cell and he says, the uh, governor just signed a stay for your execution. Now that's mercy, okay? But he goes another step and he says, the governor is in the lobby and he wants to adopt you and he wants to leave all of his things to you when he dies. You're going to be his heir, okay? That's grace, okay? So mercy is not getting what we deserve, and grace is getting what we don't deserve, okay? So you're all set free, you're ready to go, and the governor's going to leave you all his stuff. And I know he's got a Mercedes that he wants to get rid of too, so... <laughs> Okay, so we know the differences, but we know that we have to have grace before we have peace. And we know that that peace that God gives us, is, that's, it surpasses all peace that we even know. And praise the Lord for that. So he goes on, Paul, and he goes to, uh, in verse 8, he says, First thing, first I thank my God. And you ever really wonder why he says my God? 
Um, Paul uses my God as, look, this is my God. Martin Luther, and I had something down in my notes here about that, but Martin Luther suggests that, he says that Christianity is a religion of the positive pronoun. So if they're using pronouns, we can say that God is my God, okay? And he really is. He's a personal God, and I, I mentioned that in the beginning. He is our God collectively, but he's also my God, and he's your God personally. So he goes on and he says, <clears throat> My God, through Jesus Christ, for all, for you all, that your faith is spoken throughout the whole world. Now in Acts 2, verses 5 through 11, and I'm not going to read it, but I'm going to tell you that it tells us the different, the different people of the world that were present in Jerusalem in the day of Pentecost that heard Peter and the other disciples or apostles speaking in different languages and preaching the word of God. Among those 3,000 that got saved, some were Jews from Rome and after went back to Rome under the edict of Caesar Nero. Caesar Nero let the Jews back in. Caligula, prior to him, wrote an edict that threw all the Jews out of Rome. So Nero wanted to bring him back in. What his motive was, nobody knows, but some of those Christian Jews went back to Rome again. And uh, there was no doubt that there were some that Paul was writing to at this time. And he mentions in Romans chapter 16, he mentions some names of people that he knew that were Romans and Jewish Christians in Rome. So he did know some of them. So Paul uses God as a witness. He goes on and he says, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. Now the couple things there, he uses God as a witness. God is always our witness when we, when we pray to him. But he tells us to pray to him in secret. In Matthew chapter 6, he tells us. When he explained to the disciples, when Jesus explained to the disciples how to pray, he told them, go in your room and pray quietly. God will hear you quietly, but God will also reward you publicly if we, if we communicate with him, if we talk with him, if we, if we have faith in him, if we believe in him. And that's what we need to do. But it goes on and he says, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son. <clears throat> now Paul serves with his spirit. And according to Pauline theology, this draws a difference between the soul and the spirit. And we know in the scripture that there is a difference between the soul and the spirit. In Hebrews 4.12, it says... For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing even the division of the soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and is, a, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Uh, now, a couple Sundays ago, Pastor Rob mentioned this about the soul and the spirit. 
and how do we distinguish them? You know, one, one could bleed into the other or whatever the case may be, but according to Paul, it's pretty simple that they're, 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 they're different and they're divided. In 1 Thessalonians 5.23, it says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's talking about the soul, the spirit, and the body. We're a triune human being. We're made up like Jesus. We are in the image and likeness of God. Your soul is your conscience. And your spirit belongs to God. And it always points towards and exists exclusively for him. Now, the body, the soul, and the spirit. We're made up of three different parts. My dog has got two parts. She's got a, she's got a body, and she's got a conscience. She knows when she's got to go to the bathroom. She knows when she wants to eat. She knows when she wants to be loved, and that's about it. But she doesn't have the ability to worship God. And that's one of the reasons why we're here, is to worship God. That's why he made us. So what we talk about here is the body, the soul, and the spirit. And if I could take your time a minute to go to Genesis chapter 1. If you can turn to Genesis chapter 1. And we're going to start at verse 25. And verse 25 says, And God made the beasts of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Now, bara means he made things from nothing. So he made from nothing animals on the earth with a soul, with a soul and a body, fish, uh, everything, everything on the earth. But I noticed that he made us differently. It goes on in verse 26 and it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let, let them have dominion over the fish in the seas, over the birds in the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So he gave us dominion over everything. And I know you know, all know this, but I'm leading up to something here. In verse 2, or in, uh, in chapter 2, verse 7, this, this verse tells us and, and, and solidates for us that God had an intimate creation in man. Man is his intimate creation because he says, and the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, our physical body, okay? And he breathed into his nostril the breath of life. So the difference was, is he just made animals. He created them out of nothing. But when he created us, he created us a triune person, a person with a physical body, a soul, 
and a spirit. So we had all that when we're born. The problem is now, because we inherited Adam's sin, when we're born, we're born with a dead spirit. He told Adam, if you disobey, you will truly die. You will surely die. And he did die spiritually. Consciously, Adam and Eve were still alive, physically and consciously. But their conscience was telling them, boy, did we mess up. After they were thrown out of the Garden of Eden, and they had to work for a living. Now all of that filtered down to us, and we inherited that. So without a spirit, we really can't worship God. That's why Jesus told us in John 3 that we must be born again of the spirit and water. We have to revitalize that spirit in us in order to communicate with him, in order to speak with him, in order to get information from him and direction and wisdom. When we're born again, we're baptized by Jesus with the Holy Spirit. And Jesus in the Bible is the only one that can baptize people with the Holy Spirit. We can sit in that tub all day and wait for the Holy Spirit, but the fact of the matter is Jesus has to bless us with the Holy Spirit. Okay? When we're born again, we are baptized by Jesus with the Holy Spirit. This then brings our spirit to life again, and now we are children of God and in his image as a, tri as a trinity, a body, a soul, and a spirit. Okay, so that fills the mold. That's where we get people have that feeling that they just need something, but they don't know what it is. That's what it is. That's the hole in our heart that God comes by and fills. Now we wait. Now we're waiting for the day when this corrupted body, okay, and we know it's corrupted because it starts getting corrupted right from birth. And every morning you get up and there's a new pain someplace, so we know that it's corrupted, okay? We wait for this corrupted body to put on incorruption and this mortal to put on immortality. In uh, 1 Corinthians 15, chapter 50, uh, I'm sorry, verse 53 through 55, it says, For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on incorrupt, in, immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed in the victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? So we're waiting for that day, and that day will come. And Paul talks about that back in, in, in Romans chapter 8, where the earth is groaning, the Holy Spirit is groaning, our bodies, and we're groaning, because we've been all cursed, and we're waiting for that day when Jesus comes back and makes us whole and helps us to be with him. So in verse 10, it, Paul goes on and he says, make, he makes requests if, if by some means, now at last, I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. 
So he's waiting to go to Rome. Um, he prays without ceasing. And we say, he says that before, we're praying without ceasing. You know, I, I was watching uh, football that one night with that, that individual, Hamlet, Hamilton or Hamlin or whatever his name was, and he collapsed, okay? And I felt bad for the young guy. Um, but, you know, I, it just kind of, it, it didn't bother me, but I was concerned about, I was very glad to see everybody praying and getting around in a circle on the field and all the newscasters are praying for this young guy and everything else, and that's good, that's fine. But how many of those people do you actually think in your heart pray without ceasing? Or do they just pray when they need God for something? Okay? I try to pray without ceasing. I don't always do that. I'm the first one to admit it. But the fact of the matter is, is that was on the news for a long period of time about the prayer. And I'm thinking to myself, you know what? Why, why isn't that on the news all the time? Why isn't, why isn't the news pushing the fact that people should pray for one another? Wouldn't that be awesome? But it's not going to happen. <laughs> and it's just like, just like when 9-11 happened. I remember seeing all those, those people in Congress coming down on the front porch or front stage there and on, the, on, the, uh, on the stairs, and they were praying together, and they were singing and all that type of thing, and there was, there was unity there. You know, I'm just kind of, sometimes I just kind of, I get curious to think that when Jesus sees all this, what, what does he think? You know, what, what are his thoughts about it? It's naturally in line somehow with the word of God, but not all the word of God. They need to pray un, without ceasing like Paul did. And we all do. We all need to pray without ceasing, no matter what. We, we all have witnessed that prayer is, a power, is the power of God. We all witness that prayer works. So that's a good indication that we should probably do it all the time, no matter what. No matter what. Not probably. We should do it all the time, no matter what. So, <clears throat> so as he was praying, Paul gets his, gets God approves of his, his request to go to Rome. Okay, he, he, uh, he, it starts out in Jerusalem where he started a riot. He went back to Jerusalem and he starts, every time he goes out to preach the word of God, he starts a riot. Okay, and, and it tells us that in Acts 23. But Jesus appeared to him in the jail. And he came to him while he's in jail. And, and I can only just imagine that Paul being a little bit distressed and a little bit disappointed that, you know, every time I go out there to try to witness, it blows up in my face. Okay, I can remember when we were going to, and Mark and I and my wife went too, and we were going to the jail. And you go into jail and you sit there and you think, there's miracles that are going to happen in front of me tonight. Oh, God, I'm so excited. And people walk out of the room. <laughs> <laughs> or they don't even listen to you, or uh, the devil sends somebody in there to harass you, okay? And then you, you get in your car and you're driving on the way home thinking, I could have been home eating a pizza and watching TV and doing all that, but we kept to it. We kept to it, just like Paul did. He kept to it. In Acts 23.11, um, it, the, the scripture says, but the following night, 
the Lord stood by him in the jail and said, Be of good cheer, Paul. In other words, be of good courage, Paul. You did what I told you to do. You witnessed. You gave my testimony. If they don't accept it, that's not on you. That's on them. Don't worry about it. You did what I told you to do. You were obedient to what I told you to do. And you testified for me in Jerusalem. So you must also bear witness in Rome. And now Paul knows and he realizes he's going to end up in Rome. And he's thinking, wow, God answered my prayer. I'm going to go right swiftly to Rome. And that didn't happen that way. It didn't happen that way. Uh, he went through quite a bit. First, after his arrest, there was, a, there was a plot against his life. He was taken to Caesarea on the sea, where he, grow, where he goes in front of Felix and Agrippa, two prominent Roman leaders. He appeals to Caesar because he happened to be a Roman citizen. And he appeals to Caesar, so they thought, well, we've got to send him to Caesar now. So they put him on a ship to go to, to, go to Rome, and he's with a bunch of non-believers praying to their gods when they hit a storm. And they went into the storm, and Paul prayed. And, and Jesus accepted his prayer and, and saved all the people on the boat when they got shipwrecked. They got shipwrecked near, an island of, or near the island of Malta. He goes on the island. He gets bit by a, dead sna- by a deadly snake. Then he gets involved in witnessing to the islanders. And he, because he, he, uh, he doesn't get sick, sick by the dead snake, they take him to the king. The king says, my father is dying, and you're a god, so you've got to save him. So now he's under the pressure to do that, so he, he prays for the king's father. And the entire island gets saved. All of them get saved. The king's father gets well, and everybody's saved. Then they put him, and they send him to Rome. Then, he, then he's taken to Rome, and he's held into custody in Rome. Okay, so God had a plan for this. And sometimes God has a plan for our life. But sometimes it doesn't go right smoothly the way we seem to think it should go. You know, we have that attitude like, I'll handle this, God. I know just exactly what to do, and I know just exactly what your will is. So we'll take care of it, no problem. And... God's way is not always pleasant, but there is always a reason for it. God wanted to save these people on the island of Malta, and he did with Paul. So he used Paul for that. So in verse 11, it goes on and it says, For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be established. Now, the, the spiritual gift that Paul is talking about is uh, he's talking about the gift that Christians give each other. Okay, He's talking about those spiritual gifts that we get from the Holy Spirit and from God to certain things that we do. Some people can shoot because some people can't shoot. Okay, So <laughs> it's a gift that God gives you. And think about it. It's our job to figure out what gift God has given us as we pray and we seek the Lord for it. But Paul went on and he says, and, and, and 
the way he explains it here, the commentaries go on and it says, every part of the body of Christ has useful functions in relation to the other parts. So we all kind of work together and we're hooked together. And that's the way it's supposed to work. We're supposed to be united. Jesus talked about unity in his prayer in John chapter 17. You have to really look at that to understand that God, Jesus wants us all to be united, no matter what. And that's what's going to make us strong. And that's what we have to continually go through with. And I have to tell you, I've been very satisfied with, after going to this church for 15 or 16 years, I think now that uh, my wife and I ended up here and we actually, married, we, we actually met each other here and uh, we got married here. And uh, I, I couldn't be more than satisfied about the unity and the camaraderie here in the church, starting from the pastor all the way down. It's been, it's been really a blessing. So Paul goes on and he says, that is that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and of me. In verse 13, he says, Now I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to see you, but was hindered until now that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. Fruit is really important. That's how we know each other, by the good fruit. We're fruit inspectors is what we are. And if there's no fruit coming out of the other person, there's something wrong. There's something wrong. They're not either, they're not either following Christ. They purport to be a Christian. Maybe they're backslidden. Maybe they just don't, they don't, they don't do that, okay? There's something wrong. <clears throat> he says, he goes on and he says, um, Oh, the one, the one point that I wanted to make under verse 13 is Paul wanted to go to Rome for the longest time but seemed to al always be redirected by the Lord. God's timing is perfect. God's timing for all of us. And that's a hard pill to swallow sometimes. Ask my wife. She's witnessed me swallow that hard pill for quite a while now. Okay? It's hard. It's hard when you sit back and you think, well, Lord, you know what? Your word said this is your will, but why isn't it moving forward here? Why are the wheelies, wheels stalled? You know, why do you have the brakes on? So his timing is perfect, and it's very hard to follow. Patience is the key of which I really need a lot of practice at, okay? And I know we all do. How often we come across the words in the Bible that says, wait on the Lord. Actually, we came across it tonight during worship, okay? And I got to tell you, Aubrey picked some awesome, awesome songs tonight, and it almost looks like she was reading my notes while she was taking notes, while she was picking those. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's been reading along with me for about three weeks now. So. <laughs> but... How many, how many times we see those words, wait on the Lord? And I did a little research, and I hope this research is good, that uh, there's 15 verses in the Bible that give reference to waiting on the Lord. And that's important. That's what he wants us to do. 
And why? Because his timing is perfect. He can see in the future of what needs to be done and what need, what's going to happen. <clears throat> so he goes on, and uh, in verse 14 and 15, he says, I am the debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians. And again, barbarians is not a bad word. It's just people that they refer to barbarians, people that couldn't express the Greek language properly. So they were barbarians. So if any of us in here can't speak Greek, we're barbarians. <laughs> so, and both to the wise and the unwise, so as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. So we go on to the last two verses here, which probably is the crux of the entire book. And the first one, verse 16, it says, Paul tells us, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Now he puts it in that context, the Jew first and then the Greek, because the Jews were actually picked first. They were picked and they were given the oversee of the oracles of God. But then he included us after, which was, was, which was a blessing. We're grafted. Remember, we're, we're wild, but we're grafted. And now we're grafted in. So we don't have to be concerned about that. So verse 16, Paul was not ashamed of the gospel. Can you think of anyone that we hang around with here that's ashamed of the gospel? Well, there are people that are ashamed of the gospel. Why might someone be ashamed of the gospel? Well, it seems like a very strange message. Here's this Jewish carpenter and a teacher, and uh, he's put to death on a cross by Pontius Pilate, the guy that's in, in charge, the authority. Okay. But it goes on, the message says, and also says that uh, this man, Jesus, he also was raised from the dead. Okay. And that's what would somebody that doesn't really believe would really think about that. They'd kind of scratch their head and say, yeah, okay, I understand. But a crucified Messiah was a contradiction to the Jews. And a crucified Jew seemed like foolishness to the Romans. Paul had no confidence in his public speaking of the message to change lives. Okay, when we used to go into in the jail, or even now, behind the podium, we shouldn't have any confidence in our message to change lives. But he knew the power of the Spirit to change lives as they heard the good news about Jesus' death and resurrection. People are saved by faith. But faith is not the cause of salvation. The cause of salvation is the grace of God, the will of God, and the Spirit's power working through the message. So if you don't have those three things, then you're not going to have the message. Simple as that. When we saved people in the jail, 
Um, I remember two of us were serving at one of these places in the jail that was, didn't have air conditioning. It was the middle of July, and it was a real small cell block. And the chaplain came to us and said, hey, can you guys go and minister in this cell block because there's been two hangings there. Two young men hung themselves all within a, in about a month or so. So I first got there, I went in and I sat amongst them and, I, and we sat at the table and we started asking them if they want prayer. And that was the easiest way to get to prisoners is by asking them if they wanted prayer. And they always jump at that. So they came over to the table and we started praying and then I started handing them, we started handing them out Bibles and we started studying the Bible. And by the time we got done within a three week period, we witnessed 15 people accept Jesus as their savior. And it was the fear of what was going on in that little cell block that they really turned to God and they were afraid. Did they end up staying saved? Nobody knows. That's between them and God after. But they really sincerely prayed and accept Jesus as their savior. And it was a wonderful thing to watch. So the cause of salvation is grace, the grace of God, the will of God, and the Spirit's power working through the message. Verse 17, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now, Martin Luther keyed in on this verse here, and this is the theme of the entire book, justification and belief. And he keyed in on this, and this was the, this was the thing that changed his entire life and religion was the righteousness. He, he keyed in on the righteousness of God, the righteousness being given to us once we accept Jesus as our Savior. Righteousness is a foundation of Paul's message. This verse changed Martin Luther's view of God as he studied it. There's three ways to understand God's righteousness. Number one, God always does what's right. It's one of his attributes. Psalm 119, 142 says, Your righteousness is everlasting. Number two, his actions and his uh, activities are sometimes identified as righteous and righteousness. Isaiah 45, 8 says, Let the sky rain down righteousness. I have created it. And number three, God's righteousness is a gift from him and justifies us in his sight. So we automatically become righteous when we're saved. Justification, and you might know that this comes from me, but justification is a courtroom term used by the judge to declare someone right and just. So he justifies us. In this letter, Paul explains how God is able to declare sinners to be righteous because of Jesus' work on the cross. 
from faith to faith means this righteousness comes to us from start to finish by faith. And that's what he, that's what he talks about. So the next time I'm up here, we'll go on. And uh, Paul is going to, if you want to read ahead, Paul's going to make a case for how we are sinners. And we're all sinners, no matter what. We miss the mark and we, uh, we fall short of the glory of God. We're going to have communion tonight, but there's one thing I want to read here before we have communion. And I'm, I'm so... Uh, so thankful because my wife turned me on. My wife turned me on to this uh, preacher the other day, and uh, it was just amazing. The whole thing really brought you to tears, and I don't think I'm going to be able to do that. But if you if you could turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter seven, and we'll start at verse thirteen, Matthew chapter seven. Now, Jesus is talking about the narrow way. And in verse 13, he says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. He goes on in verse 15 and he says, Beware of a false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. Verse 21 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall I enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have I not prophesied in your name, casting out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That's pretty scary. And I think what you should do is remember and think about these, these scriptures here when you come up and you grab your things and we go back and we take our communion together. And I have to get into my, because uh, I did take some notes on this. You know, I sat around while I, after I read this and after I, I, I listened to that sermon like three times and I read the chapter over and over. I read these verses over and over again. And, and I really sat and I thought about it. 
And I wasn't troubled in my heart about your self-esteem. I wasn't troubled on whether you feel good about yourself. And I wasn't troubled on whether you're living the life that you want to live or that your bank account is full. What troubles me is the people that don't hear this. The people that end up and are destined for hell. You know, Pastor Rob always tells us and the other pastors always tell us here at Calvary Chapel that there is good news, but we have to get the bad news first. There is bad news. And we have to understand that. Are we really serious in all this Christian walk that we do? Are we really serious? And that's what bothered me. Salvation is by faith and faith alone in Jesus Christ, followed by repentance and turning away from sin and a hatred for the things God hates and a love for the things God loves. Put away the world and walk the narrow path to be more like Jesus. Examine yourself. Do we examine ourselves with the Bible? Do we compare ourselves to Jesus, not to everybody else? Because we can always find someone that we've got a better job than them or we've got more education than them. That doesn't make a difference. Paul put that all behind him, remember? He started right from the womb. God separated us from the womb, no matter what we did in our lives. It took 52 years to catch up to me, but that's beside the point. <laughs> but I'm sure God uses us even before that time. I'm sure of that. He always makes good out of bad, okay? And he may have used us. Examine yourself against the scriptures like Paul did. Are we walking in the narrow path? And this really you should think about when you take communion. Are we really remembering him the way we should? If you're saved tonight, which I think most of you are, we're rebellious. And we deserve the wrath of God. But if we're saved, think about this. If we're all saved, you're not saved because he was flogged or he had a crown of thorns on his head or he was beaten or he was nailed to a cross. We're saved because he took God's wrath for us. In that dark moment, he spiritually took on his father's wrath so that we can be reunited with our God. And that's really the most important thing of everything. We all sit around and we pray about certain things, and that's really good for praying without ceasing. The fact of the matter is, if he didn't do anything else for us in the entire life, in our entire life, but saved us from God's wrath, that's really all that matters. We need to spend a lot of time with him alone. We need to sit at the bottom of the cross and really look up and think just exactly what he did for us. Yeah, he went through the beatings and everything, but he took that separation and that 
wrath of God for us. So we don't have to do that. And I'd hate to think what being separated from God would actually would be. People say the cross is a sign of how much man is worth. That's not true. If you ever hear that, that's not true. What's true is, it's a sign of how depraved we are that God had to send his own son to die for us. That's the truth behind the cross. He did that all for us. Now if I can ask uh, Aubrey to come up. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he gave thanks, he broke the bread and said, Take and eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake. Then he went on, and in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And Heavenly Father, I thank you for the new covenant. Let's partake. Father, I thank you for this night. I thank you for those that came out, Lord. And I thank you for those that are watching online. Lord, I thank you for your wisdom and your discernment in all that we do. And I pray that you bless my brothers and sisters here. Give them safe travel mercies on the way home, Lord. And help us all to be continually comforted in you as we attempt to spend time alone with you, Lord. Help us to know you more. As Paul said, we need to know you more. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for this night. And we pray this in your holy name. Amen.